we are members of the family of the living God, that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but our elder brother, the one who has gone on before us, the one who is preparing a place for us, the one who is granting to us the strength to live each day. We're so grateful, Father, for the written word that is in our hands and for the fact that your spirit is the one who uses the word to illuminate our minds and hearts and to challenge us to resist the world system that surrounds us and which invades uh, our lives every day. Father, we know that we are but aliens here, that we are just passing through, and yet, Father, we have to admit that it is a real battle, and sometimes it's difficult. But we know that you are the strength of our lives, that you will continue to be with us even to the end of the age, as you have promised. And we ask you to teach us from your word this morning. We ask you to be present in every class on this property this morning and to glorify your great name and to work in each life according to the needs that are there. In Christ's name, amen. 22nd chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 22. Let me again read the first half a dozen verses. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Last Sunday we were looking at this particular passage and we were noting that this is a very upbeat passage. It's a passage of commendation. It's a passage of blessing, mutual blessing of Joshua to these various uh, soldiers that had been with him and expressing the fact that they had been a great blessing in turn to him over the past seven years. Whatever will be the future failures of the Transjordanian tribes, and they will be many, as will be the failures of the Jewish nation as a whole, their service to Joshua and to Israel during that seven-year period is something that is an actual role model to us, and I tried to highlight some of that last week. Undoubtedly, the members of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh who were serving with the Israelite army and who were battling away to win Canaan on behalf of the nine and a half tribes while their homes were on the other side of the Jordan, it, there's no doubt about the fact that each of the soldiers probably went home during the course of that seven years at some point in time. Uh, every soldier uh, deserves R&R. And there has to be a time when, when the soldier is rotated out of service uh, and then probably would return later. 
But as we look, about, look at this, we see that the, the thrust here is that they stuck with the task. They were committed to maintaining their vow, which they had made before the Lord and that they had made to Joshua. They already had their homes. They already had their land. It was conquered. It was settled. Their families were on the other side of the Jordan, and yet they were in the battle west of the Jordan River. They endured separation from family and, of course, the possibility of battlefield death or injury. And, of course, we have to remember, and, and it, you know, it doesn't take any stretch of the imagination to think of this, that battlefield injury in those days was much more serious than battlefield injury is today for the very fact that there was very little that medical science could do, if you want to call it that in those days. If, if you were injured, you, if you got well, it was more <laughs> the strength of your body, or in this case, maybe God's divine intervention than it was anything that medical science could do in those days. If you were injured and made somehow unable to do your normal task, this was a very difficult thing because there was, of course, no, what do you call it, disability insurance in those days, and you, were, you just became a, a liability if you were unable to work. And so they endured the possibility of all of this, including the fact they were laboring on behalf of Christ, in effect, self-serving reasoning. So I think really it boils down to this. They obeyed God by keeping their vow to help their brothers. And in so doing, they proclaimed their faith that God would protect them and their families and provide for their families while they were doing the will of God. And I think that's important for us to always bear in mind. If God calls us to serve Him, He will take care of the things that we might otherwise be doing if we hadn't been called by God to do this other thing. And so they believe that and they express that. Now, if they had reneged on their promise, then I think disease, famine, and marauders would have been their lot and they wouldn't have been able to fight them off. In fact, they probably would have died as a result of those factors had they refused to obey and follow through in keeping the vow which they had made to Moses and, of course, to God. I think God would have lifted his hand of protection and God would have allowed them to be subject to the things of this world just as all others were. He would, it would have, in effect, negated his promises. I've highlighted this many and many time, a time, and that is God's promises are always conditional. They're conditional upon our obedience and upon our faith. So it is throughout the whole Old Testament as you read it. Now, God made some wonderful promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants. And yet, when they failed to be obedient, God allowed disaster to come. And ultimately, they were, they were, they were carried off into captivity and they lost the land. Joshua was very thankful. He was just delighted that these men had served so faithfully. And he was very enthusiastic in his blessing upon them. He said to the men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Go in peace to your homes. You have served us well. His only admonition was the admonition we read in the fifth, chapter, uh, fifth verse of this chapter. And I think it behooves us to read it again. Verse 5 of chapter 22. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law 
which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you read these admonitions in the Old Testament made by Joshua or Moses or one of the other great uh, men that God had called out. You discover that they are not wishy-washy, namby-pamby, shallow admonitions. They go all the way down to the deep root of the matter, and that is it is to be wholehearted, absolute commitment to God. I think this verse is as much a key to successful Christian living today as it was for the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh. Because we see in this verse, I think, at least five specific admonitions. First of all, there is the admonition to be careful to observe the word of the Lord. That is to learn it and submit to it. Not observe it in the sense that, obviously, you put it up there in a prominent place and look at it every once in a while, right? Which happens in some circles. There are some Christian circles where the Bible is held up more as an icon than anything else. And, and of course, in the, in the Jewish tradition, uh, the Bible became, that is, the Word of God became a sacred thing and they carried it around and to lose it was tragedy, but to know what it said was a different thing in many cases. Secondly, the admonition was to be careful to love the Lord. That is, to honor God and to respect God and to give Him wholehearted commitment. In our day and age, actually it's, it's been really true for much of the 20th century, uh, people have a sense of the word love as some kind of a warm fuzzy. You know, love is kind of a oozy thing. Wh what we're talking about here is not necessarily that kind of a feeling at all, but a absolute respect of God. The scripture tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that is a, an awe-filled respect of God to the point where we're absolutely committed to serve Him because we know that He is worthy of our service. Thirdly, there is an admonition here to be careful to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments. In order to walk in His ways, we must see the path. In order to see the path, we must have the Word of God as the lamp unto our path. And so we're looking at an admonition that God's Word was to be the lamp unto the path of each individual, the very foundation for thought, word, and action. Kind of covers the basis, doesn't it? If the Scripture is foundation for our thoughts, for our words, and for our actions, that takes care of all of life. And that's why, of course, knowing the Word of God is so important. It's pretty hard to think God's Word if we don't know it. It's hard to speak God's Word if we don't know it. And obviously, you can't live by God's Word if we don't know it. Fourthly, we have an admonition here to be careful to hold fast to God. That is to cling to Him. As if our very existence depends upon Him. Because obviously it does. Our every decision and our every plan must be made with God's desire foremost in our thinking. Do we make every plan after submitting that plan to God? Do, do we not carry it into action until we have submitted to God for His approval? 
Sort of like, you know, if you're an underling in management and you come up with an idea, you have to submit it to the, those over you inside the corporation before you can put it into action. Well, I think it needs to be that way in our lives. Not every plan we hatch is a plan that comes from God. And therefore, we need to be sure that we present our plans to the Lord for His approval, if you will, uh, to know that He is directing us uh, in every step of the way. Fifthly, then, we have an admonition to be careful to serve God wholeheartedly. That is to recognize that the very purpose of our existence is to serve Him. We are so well aware, I think, of the fact the age in which we live is one in which we're told that the purpose of our existence is to have fun, to enjoy ourselves, to make the most of our every moment for our own self-gratification. And all of society is focused towards self-gratification, which is the antithesis of God's purpose, the antithesis of our creation. That doesn't mean, of course, that we're supposed to sleep on a bed of nails and walk on coals every day uh, to mortify the flesh or to do as the flagellants did back in the Middle Ages and walk around and whip themselves on their backs, you know, publicly walking through streets, whipping themselves, themselves bloody because they were supposedly demonstrating some kind of uh, desire for God to look upon them because they're bloodying themselves. Mortification of the flesh, which is commanded in Scripture, is, is not the idea of wearing a, a hair shirt, you know, or something that uh, makes us very uncomfortable. It's, it's a mental attitude. It's, it's a commitment, uh, putting God first in our lives. And of course, we are well aware of that Generation X, and I, I, you know, this is really interesting. So much today is oriented towards Generation X. And we, we well, I don't want to step on any toes, so I won't say much. But anyway, you know, so much is oriented towards Generation X, and yet Generation X is not as if it's some kind of a freak that's been grown on this planet with new DNA. Generation X does what it does, thinks what it does, because of the environment in which it was raised. And if members of Generation X don't have much commitment to things, it's because their parents don't have much commitment to things. And if they're into flaky things, it's because their parents allowed flaky things to become a part of their lives. It's, it's a learned thing. It's not, a, you know, it's not genetic. And that's why I, I'm not so sure we need to cater to these kinds of things. I, I think we need to train people in the right way and to lead them in the ways to learn commitment. Commitment is absolutely essential. There's so much, quote, chirp, church hopping today because people are looking for some kind of self-fulfilling uh, situation in church rather than looking for a place where they can plug in and do the work of the Lord. It, it, it all stems back to this self-gratification mentality. And that is a learned thing in terms of, you know, within the church. It's, it's a natural thing, of course, for all of us. But uh, within the church, if a child is trained up in the way he should go, um, he will walk in it for the most part. So anyway, let me turn to Colossians chapter 3. I, I emphasize these verses here in Colossians chapter 3 often in my classes at college. Colossians 3 verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do. Now, whatever you do seems like a fairly all-encompassing phrase to me. 
whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. If I can convince the students in my classes that it isn't for me that they're laboring, it isn't because they're trying to get a certain letter grade that they're laboring, it's because they serve the almighty creator of the universe who knows their attitudes, their desires, and their hearts. If they can always remember to do their work for him and make it actually happen, suddenly shoddy work is replaced by good work. You know, today, if we work for an employer and we don't like the employer very well, we think he demands too much of us or she demands too much of us, and we really think that we deserve something better, and as a result we slack off and don't do a good job, that is not Christian. It's not Christian. Because God says to do your work heartily as for the Lord. Doesn't matter if your employer doesn't appreciate it, God does. And he's more important than the employer. And, and that applies in every area of our lives. We should do what, if, if we're going to do it, we need to do it to the glory of God. And that means to do it as well as we can. Obviously, we all have different talents and abilities. We can't do it all the same. But the attitude is to do it for his glory. And I think that was demonstrated in the lives of these several hundred, well, actually thousands of soldiers that served here uh, on the part of Joshua and Israel from Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They had done their work well. And so Joshua sent them off with a blessing. Let's read the next few verses in Joshua 22, beginning at verse 7. Now to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half-tribe, Joshua gave possession among their brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and said to them, Return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with very many clothes. Divide the spoils of your enemies with your brothers. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard of it, and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. <laughs> Sometimes when you teach history, as I do, uh, some people complain that you talk too much about war. But if you've ever read much history, <laughs> you know that war is a dominant topic. It's like the old Tennessee Ernie Ford song. You probably remember it where he, he sings that mankind has been fighting. Uh, how, how does it go now? Um, since creation day. Yes, since creation day. Uh, fighting and feuding since creation day. And that's just about it, you know. It wasn't too long after Creation Day before Cain killed Abel. 
and uh, it's been going on ever since. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> so therefore, God sent a little water to wash them all away. You know, <laughs> only as the song goes, it'd be fire next time. Mm. The only tribe of all twelve tribes to be granted an inheritance by both Moses and Joshua was the tribe of Manasseh. Now, the division of the tribe of Manasseh implies that some of the clans were willing to live in Bashan on the plateau above the Sea of Galilee, while others were not. Some, apparently, for whatever reason, did not agree with their brothers to stay there on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, I'd like to back up here to Numbers to see if we can infer at least a possible reason for this. Numbers chapter 32. You remember this. It wasn't, well, it was a little while back, but not too far back. Numbers 32, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an, exceed, had a, an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to, Ele and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nim Nimrath, Heshbon, Eliela, Sabam, Nebo, and Beon, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. And you remember Moses went ballistic. Uh, because he says, what are you guys trying to do? You're trying to discourage everybody. You want to stay here and not go across the Canaan. He says, hey, wait a minute, Moses. <laughs> we, we will go at the head of the army to conquer Canaan. Oh, it's just that there's wide open spaces here, lots of land for grazing, and we have lots of animals. Let us stay here. And God gave Moses the assurance that this was right and, and that they could do this. But you'll notice as we read this passage, in verse 1 it says, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad. Nowhere in those five verses is the half-tribe of Manasseh mentioned at all. Now you go all the way down through that 32nd chapter, it's not until you get to the 33rd verse where we read, so Moses gave them to the sons of Gad, to the sons of Reuben, and the half-tribe of Joseph's son Manasseh the kingdom of Sion, and the kingdom of Og. So, what we have here is an interesting thing. That's why I say it's inferred in this passage, because it is not directly mentioned in this passage as to a possible reason why the clan or the tribe of Manasseh became divided. It seems that certain clan leaders of the tribe of Manasseh came to join with Reuben and Gad after the deal had already been struck after Moses had given the permission for them to stay uh, to stay there suddenly it seems that about half the clan leaders of Manasseh said hey what about us us too you know we would like to be a part of this too now it could have been that they had large tribe um, large herds and that they had listened to the logic of Reuben and the logic of Gad and said yeah you know that makes sense why don't we join them too the question is why did the other clans of Manasseh decide not to stay in Transjordan and to go across the Jordan River and to find their land in Canaan? Well, Scripture doesn't say. We can only guess at what their reasoning may have been. 
it's very probable that their reasoning was the land in Canaan is probably more fertile than this land that we're looking at here. The land on top of the Gilead Plateau, from Bashan in the north clear up to the lower slopes of Mount Hermon, all the way down south, that land is largely good land for grazing. It's not really wonderful agricultural land. Part of the reason for that is it gets the secondary rain. The primary rain comes in, coming in off the Mediterranean falls in Canaan. If you're all familiar with the concept of the rain shadow, which if you ever live in Nevada, you really know what a rain shadow is. Uh, the great Sierra Nevada stand up there and block all the rain and snow and what you get left over in Nevada isn't much. But uh, as, as the rains, as clouds come in off the Mediterranean, they're forced up over the Judean and Ephraim, Ephraimic, the highlands of Ephraim, and, and they drop their moisture and it drops down into the Jordan Gorge. Now when air masses sink, it's called adiabatic heating. It's heating by compression. As the air masses sink, they heat. The greater they heat, the more their capacity to hold moisture is. Therefore, they don't drop it. In fact, they absorb it. A and then, of course, they rise back up over into the plateau of Gilead. But by that time, most of the moisture has already fallen in Canaan. So a lesser amount falls in Gilead. Enough to sustain grasses, but not enough for good what we would call dry farming. If you go to the country of Jordan today, which possesses that territory, you'll find that most of the actual farming occurs in the Jordan Valley, not up on top of the hill. In fact, if you go into um, Amman, Jordan, which is the capital, you, you're struck by the fact it is a very dry place. So if you have herds, okay. If you want to do some actual dirt farming, Canaan's better. And so it could be that uh, half of the clans of Manasseh were hoping that they would find more fertile, better land than was existent, existing at that time in the steppe land of Bashan. It could be also that they felt an obligation to stick with the others, particularly to their close cousins, the Ephraimites, and uh, to help them. Whatever is the case, what you discover, and you can see this if you look at the map that I gave you several weeks ago of the area, the tribe of Manasseh, was given a major section in central Canaan and also a section in northern Transjordan. You add those two sections together and you discover they have more square miles of land than any tribe except Judah. And yet you go back to the book of Numbers and you discover that Manasseh is only an average sized tribe. There were four or five tribes larger than Manasseh in population. So they ended up with more land per person than any other tribe did as a result. Now verse 8 of this um, passage in Joshua illustrates the fact that God blessed Israel with the fruit of conquest. They had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And after wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, Israel possessed very little of this world's goods. Nomadic people do not have crowded, jamful garages. Generally speaking, <laughs> what, what was it they were saying? Somebody was telling us at school that three moves is equal to one fire. <laughs> Move three times is equal to having a fire that burns your house down <laughs> in terms of getting rid of junk. I don't know if that's true or not. But if you're a nomad, you obviously don't want to carry too much stuff with you. 
And so they didn't possess very much of this world's goods. And although the Israelites are still going to be, at least some of them, living in tents for at least a while, they are no longer going to be nomadic. They're going to be settling in a given area and become actual sedentary farmers with auxiliary herds. God blessed this nation because of their obedience in conquering the land, in following Joshua and doing as God had commanded in the overall sense of the word. We've already looked at the little details where they failed. But in the overall sense of the word, they did conquer the land. And God didn't just bless them with real estate. He gave them turnkey real estate. Towns already built, homes already built, orchards already planted and giving fruit, vineyards already planted, giving fruit, fields already plowed. I mean, the land was tame. <laughs> and, and so they weren't just moving in like the Oklahoma Sooners, you know, crashing into the middle of this Indian territory and staking out a homestead with nothing but a hunk of ground was already prepared. And then on top of that, what does God give them? Well, in verse 8, Joshua says, Return to your tents with great riches, livestock, silver, gold, bronze, iron, and clothes. Where'd they get this stuff? <laughs> From the Canaanites that they chased out or killed. They had gathered this great amount of spoil. So not only do they have a land, they have a land that is immediately occupiable, and on top of that, they have bank accounts, if you will, already in place. Josh reminded the returning soldiers that were going home and those that were going back over to the land of Transjordan that they were to share what they had gained, that they were to not just keep every little thing they had gotten for themselves, but to share with those who, were st who stayed at home. Because there were those at home who were too old to fight or too young to fight. There were widows. There were orphans. They were to share with them also. And that, of course, is a picture of the church. The church is to reach out and minister to those within the church who have need in whatever way that can be done. Verses 10 to 12 of this passage are really amazing, aren't they? As you read through, through this. It tells us what happens when rumors and misunderstandings begin to develop and the disastrous or near disastrous results that can come. We are often driven by rumor. We react to something we hear without discovering whether or not it is true. Now in the general euphoria, that the Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh experienced. They were going home. They'd had a successful tour of duty. They had helped their brothers uh, conquer the land. They had been commended by Joshua. They had all the spoils of war. And so just before they crossed the river into their land, they built an altar monument. They didn't put any big sign on it saying why they built the altar monument. And someone saw them build it. And someone came back and said, you know what those guys did just before they crossed over the Jordan? They built an altar. And the story spread like wildfire. And what was the reaction? The armies of the nine and a half tribes gathered at Shiloh prepared to go to war against those very men who had just helped them conquer the land of Canaan and who had just been commended by Joshua. 
for their commitment. Talk about fickle. That's one of the great attributes of the human race, fickleness. It just reminded me every time I read, I re read that, it reminds me of Jesus. Palm Sunday was only what? Five days from Good Friday? Hail him who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of the Jews, crucify him. Talk about fickleness. I mean, they gather together on the word of somebody who says they built an altar and they assumed that the purpose of this altar was something other than its intended purpose. Now, one good thing out of this can be highlighted, though, and that is they were concerned about the maintenance of the pure faith. That is the real motivating factor here behind their reaction. Fortunately, cool heads will prevail. That's why God gave to Israel Joshua. That's why God gave to Israel Phineas. You know, when we go into the book of Judges and you read about priests like Eli, whose sons were so wicked and who himself died in a very ignominious way, and another young man unrelated to him would be trained up to be the high priest, we tend to forget that the priesthood in the beginning was given wonderful leadership. Aaron was a godly man. His son Eliezer was a godly man. And his son Phineas was a firebrand for God. And Phineas will, of course, play the, the key role in what happens here. Phineas will be God's fireman. <laughs> He'll be the person who will come along and put the fire out. He will the person, be the person that comes along and discovers the real root to this whole thing and realizes that they were all getting excited and, and bothered over nothing because they hadn't sought to discover the truth before they mustered the army and got ready to go to war. Isn't it interesting how we are so quick to believe something that is rumored which is negative? If it's bad about somebody, we're quick to believe it. We have a natural tendency within ourselves to want to elevate ourselves by pushing somebody else down. That is a horrible fact that is true about the human race. We are not, as Paul says, to measure ourselves amongst ourselves, to measure ourselves by God, and then to uplift one another. Scripture says we're to consider one another as better than ourselves which is exactly the opposite of what we want to do in the flesh. We always want to consider ourselves better than everybody else. That's one of the things that makes Christianity so obviously true. Because all other religions support that. Mohammedanism supports that. Hinduism supports that. Buddhism, in effect, supports that. The, the you know, elevation of self. Christianity is the opposite, which is one of the most powerful proofs of its truth. Well, uh, chapter 22, uh, verse 13 to 20, is one of the very powerful passages of Scripture helping us to understand how God deals with issues within His body that are needing correction. And God raises up a wise head, so to speak, to cool off what otherwise could be a real disaster. And we'll, we'll look at that next week. We don't have time to pursue that today.